Hi folks, this is Jack Smirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, November 30th, 2016. That means we're going to close out the month of November and enter the wonderful month of December tomorrow, the last month of the year. It's a time of mixed emotions for me because one, as I've said many times in the past week, I love the holiday season. I, I Not just Christmas, but the whole damn thing. I love it. But the other thing is it's always coming back to the old thing. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is marching on. One more month. One more month. And the year will be 2017. It's time to start making something out of whatever your plans are, or else they're just plans. Just a little reminder from Jack there. So since it's a Wednesday, you know what we're going to have today. An interview with one of my favorite people. He is a writer for Backwoods Home Magazine, Mother Earth News, Self-Reliance Magazine, Home Power Magazine, and others. His articles cover all areas of solar power, emergency power, backup power, battery power, and energy conservation. His name is Jeff Yago. And I've been reading Jeff for years. I, you know, Backwoods Home uh, is a longtime sponsor of the show, and recently they, they're, they're still the same company, but they have another magazine called Self-Reliance, and they just changed which product they're advertising. But I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home magazine since 93, and it's, it's cool to me that I get to work with people from that world now, and Jeff is definitely one of those. I learned a lot from Jeff in his writing over the years. He's going to be on today to talk to us about... Uh, his new book, which is titled Lights On. Lights On. We're going to talk about risks to grid power reliability, about generators, um, why everybody should have some solar power in their homes, and some things that Jeff proposes in his book, along with battery-powered applications and how that is actually really a very historical part of life in America. Before, you could just always flip a switch, but electricity was around. There was a lot of battery power in America that's been all forgotten about, and the skills of maintaining and building that have been lost. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21, and a dot com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1907 because the episode is 1907. I have for you today the Brownsville incident and Marconi opens for business. I also have a lot of notable pop culture births today. 
Here's what we have. Cesar Romero is born this year. He will play the Joker in the 60s Batman series. Burgess Meredith is born. He will play the Penguin in the 60s Batman series and Mick the Trainer in the movie Rocky. Faye Ray, she'll scream all the way through the 1933 movie King Kong. Orville Redenbacher will start out selling popcorn out of the back of his car. Robert Heinlein, sci-fi author of Starship Troopers, Stranger in a Strange Land, and many others. Cab Calloway, early band leader, but best known as the musical mentor to the Blues Brothers in the movie. Gene Autry, known for Back in the Saddle Again, Here Comes Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and other classics. Rosalinda Russell, amazing actress, but I loved her in, as Mother Superior of an all-Catholic girls' school in The Trouble with Angels. Catherine Hepburn, another amazing actress in films like The African Queen and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Ray Millard, an amazing actor, remembered best for the cult classic The Man with X-Ray Eyes. And John Wayne, the action film actor, not the airport, not the serial killer. Definitely not the guy who had his manhood chopped off by Lorena Bobbitt. John Wayne, the Duke. Uh, one of the, the great actors of that era, as far as I'm concerned. I, I love John Wayne and John's movies. Um, I just want to kind of note one thing. I, I think it would be very difficult for a person today to be the next Orville Redenbacher, to start selling a food product out of the trunk of his car and build a, a huge corporation. That's sad. Next time somebody tells me, you know, America's the freest nation in the world again, it's another one of those things you can point to. We used to have success stories like that in America. We need government out of the way so that we can have more success stories like that. I'm going to read Marconi Obas for Business only because the Brownsville incident is long, and we had a very long list of pop culture births today, so I'm going to read the shorter one. That's how I made the determination today, because they're both good and important. Marconi is credited with the invention of the wireless telegraph and radio in general, although his transmissions are not continuous wave transmissions, as one would expect from AM and FM radio waves. In other words, he was not set for sound. Certainly, he has tied together the major elements of the wireless telegraph this year, and he is open for business. He has built two large transmitters on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, no more wires along the sea bottom, along with transmitting messages back and forth. He also provides a news service for ships. He provides the equipment and operator who take down the information on shipboard. Then the news is included in the ship's newspaper for their passengers. Marconi is also peddling his wireless as a safety device. While when ships are in trouble, they can send an SOS. The new emergency signal has been uh, adopted recently and will remain the universal distress signal until 1999 when it will be replaced by the Global Maritime Distress and Safety System. Yeah, I have no idea either. I'm sticking with SOS. My take by Alex Shrug. As an interesting side note, Marconi was slow and steady wins the race kind of guy. As a consequence, he didn't win many races. He stuck with the old systems that were more reliable when better systems were being developed by others. He did save some ships with his wireless telegraph, and as a consequence, he was offered a free ride on the Titanic. What a treat. He took another ship because he needed to get some work done, and he liked the stenographer on the other ship. He missed out on that adventure, but the wireless allowed many passengers to be rescued because the wireless allowed nearby ships to be notified after the Titanic hit that iceberg. Um, the thing about Marconi is even though he was surpassed by many of his contemporaries, it still did end up with a very large company that's still in business today. So that is an interesting thing. But there is a lesson in that. If we don't adapt to new technologies as entrepreneurs, what happens is as your competitors enter the market, they use the most, uh, the newest and best technologies. 
whereas the existing company that has success tends to stick with what it has. And that often allows an advantage for a new entrant. I think podcasting is a perfect example of that. When podcasting really kind of took off about 10, 11, 12 years ago uh, and started to be a thing, there was an opportunity for mainstream radio to dominate the market, but they didn't get it. And when people like me started coming out with crappy audio and lower production values, they thought, ah, there's nothing to this. And because of that today, there is this plethora of small-time entrepreneurs in the podcasting world. The key for us in the podcasting world is we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to what's next. And when it shows up, we need to embrace it, at least we too, be replaced by those who are using the latest and greatest. That is the progression of the market, and it's a lesson that you can easily see in history. With that, I'm excited to bring on our special guest. We haven't had him on for, I guess it was about a year, year and a half ago that we had him on last, Jeff Yago. Again, he's a well-known writer for Backwoods Home Magazine, Mother Earth News, Self-Reliance Magazine, Home Power Magazine, and others. And I'm happy to welcome to the show today, Jeff, to uh, discuss his new book, again, called Lights On. With that, hey, Jeff, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you, Jack. I was glad to be here. Well, in the uh, intro segment that you weren't here for, I did mention kind of some of the places you write for and all, and uh, of course you've been on the show before. We pick up new people all the time, though, and there's probably a lot of people that don't know who Jeff Yago is, and I always find it interesting, too, for people to maybe uh, talk a little bit about their background, not so much, you know, where they're at today, but how they ended up there. Like, take us back to, like, Jeff Yago is sitting as a senior in high school trying to figure out what the heck to do with his life, and how does he end up in this world of, you know, backup power and alternative energy? Well, Jack, it's, um, I, I certainly go back before high school, but in high school, I, I guess mainly I can remember um, entering every science fair, every science fair uh, a competition they had, and um, I won some and lost some. But even the ones I didn't do well in, I had an opportunity to, to see what other kids my age were doing, and that was always an inspiration to to move forward. Um, I've always been interested in both mechanical and electrical things. I've, I've never really been able to say I'm one or the other. I, my, my degrees are in mechanical engineering, but since that time, most of my professional work is involved around electrical, especially uh, I've, done, I've done a lot of work designing solar power systems in, in this country and other countries and both uh, a lot of residential projects and commercial projects and even uh, institutional and large-scale projects over the years, and um, these days I'm, I'm, I guess you want to call me semi-retired, although I feel like I'm working harder now than I was before, <laughs> but most of my work these days is, is uh, writing for uh, articles and writing books. Yeah, I, I certainly understand the, uh, the, the semi-retired thing and working harder than ever before. That's Kind of how I describe myself too now with a podcast. You know, I, I stay home every day and all, but I'm, I put in more hours I think I ever did in, in the corporate world. But it's 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 better than a real job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I'll tell you, I've had people complaining that the picture in the book of me shows my hair not as gray as it is right now, and I keep telling them, well, that's what the color it was before I started writing this book three <laughs> years ago, so it uh, it does age you f quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, man, um, we're here to talk about your, your new book called Lights On, which I thought was just fantastic, 
And it really speaks mostly about the solutions when it comes to vulnerability and risk with your power going out, whether it's because the grid goes down or because you had backhoe fade or a lightning bolt blew up a transformer or whatever it is. But can we start out with just a little bit of a refresher on, because we had you on, geez, I guess it was a little over a year ago, and we, uh, we're going to have a link in the show notes on this, episode 1443, and we did a deep dive into the vulnerability of the electric grid, and I think that's a big part of, of what led you down this road to this book, but can you kind of give us a refresher on some of the vulnerabilities and some of the motivations for people to be prepared to do without power, either for short, mid, or even long periods of time? Sure. Um, again, that's the whole reason I ended up writing this book was um, when I started doing this early research, it, it just was amazing to me uh, the vulnerability of the grid today, and, and nobody seems to be worried about this. For example, um, the first concern I have is uh, we have all of these um, infrastructures of, of, sub, of high-voltage transformers and, and the what we call the, the national grid, the high-voltage transmission lines and towers that we see crossing the country. And a lot of this uh, equipment was installed back in the 1950s and 60s. And certainly, um, they say that the uh, high-voltage transformers today, the average life is 40 years. And, you know, factory warranties on this type of equipment is maybe 30 years at best. So um, that's certainly um, a concern that I have is just the... Uh, the aging infrastructure of the electric grid that we rely on. The, uh, there's other concerns, for example, um, because we now have interconnected a lot of these um, separate substations and power generating facilities, um, it's too complicated to control the grid's voltage and power flows manually. So um, all of this is controlled by computers. and. Um, my concern today, of course, is the uh, potential for hacking to um, to damage these systems and even override them in ways that would keep an operator not to not be aware that that the system has been taken over. And and uh, the few people that talk about this are, are concerned about hacking, shutting down the grid, and that's really not my concern at all. Um, turning off the grid. Um, can usually be brought back on fairly quickly if it's if it's done um, through uh, vandalism. But if the if the controls are overridden in a way that would cause the the grid voltage to say be lowered but not shut off or turned on and off quickly or um, you know even um, put in uh, reverse phases, uh, switching back and forth from one power source another out of, uh, out of phase and not synchronized together. Um, this doesn't just shut off power. This, this can destroy uh, industrial motors, uh, all of your home appliances. Anything that would have transformers or motors in it can be, can be damaged by this through hacking. So these are permanent-type damages that, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of turning the power back on when you figure out what was wrong, but but having to go in and replace, you know, thousands and thousands of, of pieces of equipment. So uh, that has been, uh, you know, a concern of mine, too. And, of course, there's also an increased risk these days about um, EMP damage. We hear a lot in the news today about how um, 
if a nuclear weapon was detonated at a high elevation above the central United States, how that can blanket the country with an, an EMF, an EMP pulse that that can destroy microelectronics and and uh, integrated circuits that are part of all this control network and our communications network. So we just seem to be going in uh, to more and more potential for systems uh, being damaged, and yet there's just not much being done about it. Um, in the book, I mentioned a number of, of national uh, studies that have been done by our government, and and as I mentioned in our first interview, the, these studies were really well done. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of uh, smart people were involved in doing testing and um, reviewing all of the potential risk and. Most of these studies were done in, uh, from about 2008 to 2014, and and as of today, I haven't seen any real results, no action taken. So uh, I feel like the the folks know what needs to be done, but there's just not the the political or the the, the public uh, demand to do anything or to spend the money. So um, even though we discussed this in detail two years ago. I have not seen any any improvement or any changes, so I feel like uh, the things we talked about then are still as much of a risk today, if not more so, than uh, they were then. Yeah, indeed. And, I mean, even without the, the hacking and stuff, just your point at the very beginning about how old some of this equipment is, it's still in service, hasn't been replaced, hasn't been serviced for so many years. You gave me a flashback. Way back in one of my formal, former lives, I was a salesperson and consultant for industrial Ethernet hardware. So I'm going to throw out an acronym that you'll probably know instantly, but the average person would go, huh? MTBF, right? MTBF, right. mean time between failures. And between failures. Right. Yep. And so what MTBF means not, well, if it fails, it's the average length of time before some component or a specific component does fail. And when you have a component that's past its MTBF, it needs to go away right away. And I just, I hadn't thought about that term in 15 years probably, other than maybe when I'm buying something complex. And when you were talking about that, that just came flooding back into my head. And my thought was, I wonder how much of that stuff out there is, you know, 10,000 hours past its MTBF rating. Uh, that's that's true. And when we're talking about uh, these transformers uh, that are over 40 years old, um, those require years to um, design and construct and transport into this country. Most of them are made in other countries now. There's only six manufacturers in the United States of, of have all these transformers, and, and, and all of those six were fairly new factories, and they're not making the largest transformers yet. They're still in the mid-size range. Um, we still, um, if 100% of their capacity was devoted to U.S. demand, that's still only 15% uh, per year of what we require in just normal, um, you know, in, in increasing capacity. So um, almost, um, what is it, 85% of the high-voltage transports that we absolutely depend on uh, are coming from other countries. They're not made here in the United States. And uh, all of these transformers require a very unique type of steel that uh, goes into the construction. There's only uh, six plants in the world that manufacture the steel. Um, and right now, China 
has 30 manufacturing facilities, and all of it goes into their own country. So they have a huge demand of, of, um, of this high-voltage equipment, and they are able to satisfy 100% of their internal expansion of their power grid. So we are heavily dependent on other suppliers in other countries just for normal system expansion, and there's hardly any um, effort going back to replace these aging systems. Some of them um, um, are, you know, you, you look at a substation and uh, sometimes you see it out in the middle of nowhere, but that's where they were all located years ago, and, and now a lot of them have been built up with the cities around them. Uh, a lot of them had railroad tracks that where the transformers were brought in, the tracks were removed 40 years ago. So, so just the logistics of replacing one of these transformers if it fails is just unbelievable. There's a, a picture in my book of one of these transformers being transported over the road, and the trailer is two lanes wide and has something like, uh, I don't know, like 300 axles, and it's about the city block long, um, you know, and they're 40 feet tall, 40 feet wide, and over 100 feet long. So you, you you can't just take that down a city street and 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 deliver it to replace a, a transformer that has been either um, burned up or or you know, some type of sabotage. So the, it's just a nightmare to replace one of these things if if it does fail. Definitely, and and again, we'll refer folks back if you want to know more about the threat. Uh, it was uh, it was over a year ago. It was almost two years ago. It was actually more than two years ago. October eighth, two thousand. October. Yep. Yeah, October eighth, two thousand fourteen. Episode fourteen forty three. Jeff Yago on the vulnerability of our electric grid. You guys go check that out. And there is a link in today's show notes to make it easier for you to find. I want to move on now with getting into more of the solutions because we define the problem here. Uh, I lived through a, a blackout around Christmas time. I guess. Five years ago, four years ago, something like that, in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, where Ice Storm came in and brought log pole pines down that were bigger than any telephone pole you ever seen and, and took out power through the whole city. And we did okay with it. We had backup heat. We had backup battery power. We had a generator. We had, you know, we're preppers. But what I remembered was when I finally could go down into town, every store was wiped out of one thing, and you'll know what it is, generators. They were all gone. And I remember hearing a lot of people talk after, I got a generator, now I got nothing to worry about. Uh, you say not so, that we need other means of, of backup power. Can you talk about why you feel that way? Sure. I have a whole chapter near the front of the book on generators, and I'm certainly not opposed to having a generator. I have three. I have a a whole house propane generator for our, our solar home as a backup backup. Um, and I have a, a portable um, three and a half kilowatt generator I use to loan out to friends and and if I have to have some power in some remote area temporarily and then I have a, a 4KW generator in my, my RV. So I certainly am used to having generators around and, and use them. But my concern is that most people who who um, buy generators fall into two categories. There's either the guy who, who's talked into buying a whole house generator, and these are typically somewhere between 12 and 20 kW, usually propane, and they come with a control module, and, and of course they're designed to uh, sense the power outage, and as soon as the power is out, they immediately switch to one, and they run until they sense the power comes back on again. 
And um, that type of a person, especially if it's typically on propane, um, you know, if the power goes out, they may not be home and there might not be anything using electricity in the house at that time and still they have a generator running. So I'm not real fond of that type of automatic control strategy, especially if we're looking at a power outage that may last longer than a, a day or two. But but normally the guy with the whole house generator is, is just trying to to continue a, a normal lifestyle for a power outage that lasts just a couple of days from a storm or a, a localized power line going down. Um, so he doesn't understand that, although that's really convenient, if he continues to operate on this automatic mode, um, he probably has only about a week's worth of, of fuel, especially if it's a underground 500-gallon propane tank is fairly common. Um, that's about five, five to seven days of, of runtime uh, if he lets the generator run 24 hours a day. So, so that's one thing he doesn't know of. Uh, when I'm talking about a grid down situation from various potential uh, causes, uh, we could be seeing power outages lasting weeks or even over several months. Uh, so, so he's going to be very unhappy in about oh, seven days when he when he suddenly is without power as everybody else is. Um, the other generator guys, usually the, the portable generators, and the, typically the, I see them around five to maybe eight, eight kWs, fairly average for a portable generator. And these are usually gasoline, although there's a few propane conversions. But this guy is... Um, the one who runs out and buys a generator the, the day after a hurricane, if he can find one, and he runs home and he gets the gasoline he had for the lawnmower and fills it up and uh, starts it. And he runs an extension cord to his refrigerator and to his television and maybe a couple lights. And again, he's happy if the power outage lasts less than two or three days. But but again, he doesn't have the ability to go very long without you know, without getting more fuel. And if he's without power, you can bet probably the whole town is, and that means he can't run down to the local gas station and get another couple of five-gallon tanks filled up. So my concern with generators, especially the people that are relying on them strictly for backup, is that they're not really thinking long-term. They're just thinking of, of a very typical power outage lasting a few days. And, and I'm saying... You know, if you do have a generator and we do have a real grid down event, your first priority is to, to find out why the power went off and probably turn your generator off until you can determine if this is going to be a, a short-term or a long-term event. And then probably you're going to have to modify the way you, you live to maximize the most uh, runtime for the least amount of fuel until until things stabilize again. So. Again, I'm certainly for generators, but I view them as a just a, a intermediate step, and and strongly encourage folks out there that up to now have been thinking, well, gee, I've got I've got stored water, and I've got stored food, and I've got a generator, I'm set. Well, my concern is they're not really thinking strategically, and they need to think what happens, you know, if what's the length of the fuel they have, and even if they have extra fuel, it's always a problem keeping it fresh and rotating it. And, and so um, that's where um, the book comes in, is to, 
to say, okay, now, now what? Where do you, where do you go from here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look at it like this. A, a hammer is a fine tool. It belongs in every toolbox, but you're not going to cut a miter joint with it, right? I mean, it has a limit to what it can do for you. And, and you know, you're the old thing. Everything looks like a nail. But, I mean, you get over that real quick. There's a lot of things it just won't do. It has limitations, and, and generators do as well. And there's certainly things in your book that pair well with generators, like battery banks, that let that generator run at some period of time and not run at others and, and make use of what would other be wise lost energy. But, I mean, when you're talking like this, are you saying, like, everyone should go out and just build a full-on solar-powered house? Um, well, really no. Um, and I even uh, state that in the book, that I'm not in any way um, – when I, when I do several chapters, I do address solar power. I make it clear that I'm not in any way encouraging people to run out spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to build a solar home. That's just, I mean, it's just not the direction I'm, I'm taking. My, my direction is this. Um, find out what things you absolutely need to, to have operating uh, during a, a, a very long-term power outage. And this is a, going to have to be a scaled down, not a, what I'd like to have, but what's the absolute minimum things that you need to continue to operate. And then uh, I take each one of those chapter uh, by chapter and say, all right, now, within this particular device that you need, and this would include lighting and uh, radios and entertainment equipment and uh, life-saving equipment that you might need in the way medical equipment, but we address each one of those chapter by chapter, and I say, all right, now, what is a way we can do this using a device that's battery powered? Um, so the the point is to not try to install a big solar system and use the solar to, to charge up a big battery bank, and the batteries are going through an inverter to go back to AC power, and then the AC power is going to be used to power conventional appliances and, and lighting and electric, electronic equipment because that's a very inefficient way of, of doing emergency power. The, your appliances, um, you know, electronic devices, even if they're Energy Star rating, that's probably 10 times more power usage than what I'm referring to. For example, um, you can, if you want to run a flat screen television, uh, they make perfectly good flat screen televisions for the RV community and boating community that are 12 volts DC to start with. And you can bet the guy who makes the AC television is not as concerned about how many watts it uses um, as the guy who's making the battery-powered one because you buy a battery-powered appliance that's not very efficient and it runs your battery down in a, in a few minutes instead of hours, you're soon going to be out of the market. So all of your uh, battery-powered devices to begin with are designed to be super efficient and to maximize battery battery life. Also, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. For example, the solar home with with trying to power regular conventional 120-volt AC appliances, um, if any part of that system breaks down, none of those AC appliances are going to work. Whereas if you have a, a battery-powered uh, refrigerator, a battery-powered uh, uh, television, a battery-powered satellite receiver, a battery-powered on and on and on, um, most of those devices are going to have internal batteries that, uh, if if something fails, 
you're only losing that one device. You're not losing, um, you know, the entire power system. Uh, so that's the direction I'm taking is trying to show people the unbelievable selection of DC-powered devices that are out there today. I mean, you can even get a 12-volt DC-powered baby bottle warmer. So there, there's literally hundreds of things you can get that if you really need to have them, you can get them in the battery in the battery powered version. Cool, man. So, what is it exactly do you feel that you're proposing and explaining in your book that that everyone else is missing? Because I, when I read it, I, I kind of felt like I had never quite read a book that was that. I wouldn't even say that deep or that wide, but just it covered things that I just didn't hear anywhere else. You know, that was the revelation to me. Um, I mean, I've spent my life, I've got 40 years' experience designing um, backup power systems and solar-powered systems. And, and you know, I have seen the industry. I mean, when I started in this business, I mean, my first commercial solar project was around 1973. So, so I'm telling my age there. But the point is the, um, the industry, has, at the time I started, I knew all the the people who are developing these products that you now, I mean, they're all name brands that are out there in the marketplace. Uh, most of them started in the garages, and, and I knew these guys when they were developing it. But but back then, uh, it just seems to me like things were a little simpler, maybe a little less reliable, but they were simpler. And the industry has, has you know, we've gone more high-tech, and and we're introducing more vulnerability instead of less, especially with all the microelectronics in the inverters and charge controllers and things, and they're certainly going to be vulnerable to grid problems and EMP problems and and and, and all of that. So I'm, I've watched the industry become to the point where if you want a solar system, you've got to you got to hire a, a special installer and dealing with uh, national electric codes and and you know higher voltage power systems. And I'm thinking, you know, we're doing all of this. Um, technology to to power conventional appliances and lights in a house. What if we we change that around and start out with the not using conventional lights and appliances? Let's use lights and appliances that are DC to begin with. You know, then how does that change the dynamics of the whole the whole process? And and that kind of was the revelation that hit me a couple of years ago, about the time we were we had our first interview when I was aware of the vulnerability of the grid and I said this has got to be a simpler way of doing things and the other thing about it too is if you did everything I described in this book every chapter and that's uh, battery powered lights, battery powered entertainment equipment, I mean just on and on and on if you did it all um, it still would all uh, easily pack in the back of a um, SUV or a truck and take it with you if you had to to evacuate or, or bug out, and, and that's something you can't do with your, or, or how your about whole house move? solar system. Or how about or move? Mean, or how about just move, right? I mean, the it, av- I think the average American moves after adulthood when they get their first house, it's like seven times in their lifetime. So if you throw $40,000 worth of solar on your roof and you sell that house, the odds that you'll recover that investment in the real estate transaction are low. They're, they're probably a little... Right, and you, but what you're talking about, if I sell my house, I take all my stuff with me, and I still have it. I don't have to start over, and I don't lose money on it. 
Correct. When when we built our solar home, we were probably one of the very first ones in Virginia that had a. I mean, we were we were the test case for the net metering law that that was in in Virginia in 1998. I mean, we had the the um, the courts came here to our house to to view the equipment and and that's what they based the net metering laws around. So we were one of the first here and and at that time I'm, I remember very clearly the. The real estate people telling us that to evaluate the house for both insurance and for resale, none of the solar equipment would be counted because they viewed that as something that the new owner may not want, which means you might have to remove it before you could really market the house. And and they viewed it as a um, something that wasn't of the same lifespan as a roof and the walls and windows. So. Um, even if you, you you know go that route, you may not get your money out of it if you you know and you can't take it with you. So you're absolutely right about the that that being an issue. Yeah, definitely. And I I just think about some of the investments I've made in my property. Not necessarily this type of an investment, but that when you like you thought, well, I'm gonna be here a long time, and then something came up in life, and you pulled up and moved a year later, and you just know that money's gone. You know, it might even make the house sell for a little more, but it, it it you didn't ever get it back. It's not like doing a kitchen or a bathroom. Those are those are high ROI improvements. You know what I mean? When I when I bought this house here, there's two huge outbuildings in it uh, with it, and there, I mean these are metal frame insulated. One of them's 1,800 square feet. The slab probably costs six ten thousand dollars to pour for it. I'd guess off the cuff sixty thousand dollars. The dude that put them in lost money. That was my windfall with it, and it, it, I really never thought about the the strand. I guess that's what we used to call it in, in telecom. We call it stranded capital, right? Like that that money can't be extracted back out. So I love that approach. Kind of uh, moving on from there, can, can you kind of talk about how some of these systems just work together? Some ideas, so people can start to get some concrete ideas of how this stuff actually fits together and works, some of these things that would fit in the back of a pickup truck or something, some, some concrete examples, I guess. Well, the first thing that I like um, to point out is in the way of lighting, um, you know, most people facing a power outage probably can't even find a flashlight that works if the batteries are not dead or the kids have taken the batteries out of them to put in a toy or something. So I'm not talking about flashlights when I talk about having emergency lighting um, during an extended power outage. I mean, and again, we're talking about power could be out for weeks, not a couple of days. If, if it was only worried about a couple of days, then, you know, sure, go get a flashlight and a pack of batteries and you'll be fine. But we're really trying to think in long-term uh, arrangements here. So the first thing that we want to talk about is lighting. And I recommend the there's some really great new products out there, LED lanterns, and um, I discuss in the book how to tell the, the better ones from the ones that aren't as good. We're looking for uh, long battery life and a high reflectivity of the light and uniform distribution of the lighting, and uh, these look like the old Coleman lanterns, only smaller. They're, they're downsized a little bit. And I don't say get one, I say get several. You know, you need to think about, okay, if if the power is going to be out in my house for a month, what room or rooms do I, am I going to need to occupy? I mean, you're not going to have lights in every room. So where are most people going to be most of the time? 
and uh, you know you want to try to have one of these LED lanterns for each one of those rooms. I would think a minimum of two or three. Um, the ne the next thing is um, where is the light fixture in your house right now? Well, it's probably centered in the middle of the ceiling of these rooms. So a simple prep right now would be to put a little hook in the ceiling right next to that light fixture and nobody's going to see it and uh, then if you have a, a power outage that lasts longer than a day you could easily pull your LED lanterns out of your little closet area you keep it stored and turn them on at night and hang them on that hook and it's going to give you almost the same type of light distribution as the the ceiling fixture you had before is certainly not maybe as bright, but at least you'll be able to walk around the room, everybody, without you know, stumbling over furniture and things. And you certainly could still use some little LED uh, table lights for task lighting if you want. So uh, that's the first thing. My my second uh, quick trick on lighting would be uh, the solar walk lights. Only I'm not talking about the three dollar ones they have on sale in the bins at checkout, but the better quality ones are typically sold, usually three or four in a pack, um, you know, 40, 50 bucks or something like those. Um, most of them are around uh, four or five inches in diameter. So these are the larger flat top solar walk lights that you see. And um, what I propose with these is instead of out going outside and stabbing them in the ground, you, you take a piece of three-quarter inch conduit and drive that in the ground along your walkways where you want the solar lights to work normally. And on the solar walk light, you take the spike off the end of it, and you just drop the support tube down in the conduit. So it's going to appear to be a, like it would normally, only might be a little taller than normal. And then you just simply take a couple blocks of wood and make a, a lamp base and put a short piece of the conduit in the center of the lamp base. And you, again, you can have four or five of these in your closet. And if you have an extended power outlet, it's just the, it's a good task for the kids would be every evening they go outside and bring the solar walk lights in that have been charged up all day. And you can put them in those rooms that need less light, but um, like hallways, stairwells, uh, bathrooms, um, places where you don't have the LED lanterns. And again, every morning, the kids can take them back, put them outside. And the fact that they're not stopped into the ground uh, means that they're not going to be dragging in a lot of dirt, and, and it's easier to, to bring them back and forth. So um, that's my first um, hints what to do simple as far as um, is lighting. You mentioned um, battery-powered appliances. So are there certain appliances that you think people should definitely own? I do. Um, I mentioned earlier um, there's some amazing new um, entertainment equipment now in the way of uh, there's uh, flat screen TVs and DVD players made for cars, um, especially if you have kids. A lot of people have these to play videos for the kids when the, they're on a long car trip. Typically, the the, uh, the video screens uh, hang over the back of the front seats. So, so there's there's uh, DC powered entertainment equipment that you can get. Um, you know, if we're talking about being without power for weeks, um, you know, you can only play checkers on the candlelight for so long. It might be nice to to be able to do do that. Also, these um, 
uh, many of these um, will receive TV channels. You can get um, televisions that are DC powered for uh, made for the RV and boating community. Uh, flat screen televisions that have a DVD player in them built in. So not only do you have entertainment source, but you also can can have a flat screen television that that runs off of a 12 volt battery to begin with. So this means you can get whatever video uh, television channels are available, uh, if available, during an outage. And of course, we definitely want to have an AM FM radio. Um, and, and I talk about in the book, I'm not talking about a little handheld transistor radio that we sometimes think about when we think of a, of a battery-powered radio, but a tabletop model, something that um, is large enough that can serve um, the whole family, something you could gather around at night like the farm families used to do in the 1920s to listen to remote news and weather and entertainment uh, on the radio. And um, there's, we've discussed in the book many sources and types to to pick from and which are the better recommended types to get, but um, you definitely want one that can get the, the weather channel, emergency broadcast weather alerts, um, and that's something not all uh, AM-FM radios can do. So um, these are, you know, definitely having an AM-FM radio with the emergency weather alert uh, channels built in is is a must-have. Um, uh, you know, the lighting in the radio and television are certainly uh, prime examples of the critical needs, but uh, we don't want to forget things that, um, such as your cell phone. It's um, most of your cell phone towers used to only have about a week's worth of generator capacity. After Hurricane uh, Katrina and Hurricane Sandy, uh, a lot of these um, cell phone uh, towers they up their fuel storage capacity. To, some, it depends on where they are, but some of them are now several weeks. And uh, typically, if you have a cell phone you can keep charged up, then uh, you should be able to get um, news and, and phone or at least test text communications with your relatives and keep it up on the news. If you can, if you have a cell phone that gets some, um, you know, some of the internet uh, over the internet broadcast uh, radio station. So, but. You know, you got to have a way to charge all this stuff. Just having a, you know, unless you buy a, a wheelbarrow load of batteries, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to have, um, once you have these battery devices, we need to find a way to, to keep them charged up. And that's our next part of the book we talk about. Can we talk about some of those ways to do that and, and, and what type of, you know, different uh, batteries we're going to charge because some of these devices, like an LED lantern you mentioned, we're going to use a, you know, probably a double A or something like that in it. And, and some of these we might be using more of a, a battery bank system. So can we talk about a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I have a whole chapter on batteries. The first thing I encourage people to do is when they, they start out on this quest to, to increase the battery powered devices they have and, and probably starting out, the only thing anybody has in a home that's battery-powered is a remote control for the television and, and, and their cell phone. And, and typically, the, you know, cell phones, uh, the only thing they have to charge them up is a, is a standard plug-in-the-wall charger. So, you know, the first thing we want to do is, uh, 
all of our battery powered devices, we certainly want to have rechargeable batteries for them. And and when you're buying these devices, you want to try to standardize on one or two battery sizes. For example, uh, typically, um, uh, you know, LED lights, uh, small ones are, and and a lot of your electronic equipment um, comes with either AAA or AA batteries. Well. Uh, AAA batteries have a very short life, um, even the rechargeable ones. So if faced with a difference between a AAA and AA, uh, you want to standardize on AA batteries. Um, the next level is the C battery and the D size battery, which we call the, the D is the old, what we call flashlight batteries from, from the past. And um, those are being, uh, a lot of the, the electronic devices are being phased out that had the D battery because it was so much larger and uh, took up a lot more space. And uh, so if you can find the same device with a C-size battery, that has almost the same amount of power and it's a lot smaller. And now you're you're kind of standardizing on a AA and a C-size battery, which should cover probably 90% of the the things that you're going to be buying that are battery power. So that's our first step is to we start buying these battery appliances and devices, start thinking about standardizing on on the same types or sizes of batteries. And um, the other thing, too, is let's say we have a, take, for example, a radio. Uh, a typical radio in a house has a 120-volt plug-in, which means it's only going to run when the grid is on or your generator is running. The generator is not running and the grid's not running, all your AC appliances are not going to work. So that's that's a real problem. If you have a say a, a DC powered radio, uh, it's going to run when you plug it into a wall outlet when the grid is running, or when you plug it in the generator when the generator is running, or if you have the right um, charger, uh, especially for cell phones, if you have the plug-in DC charger. That means now, in addition to to running on the grid or the generator, um, a battery-powered device is also going to run or be charged up when you plug it in your car, um, 12-volt outlet in your car. Um, And also, we can get an endless sizes of solar modules. Many of them are fold-up solar modules that will easily mate to the 12-volt charger that you have for that device. So so now if we have a battery-powered radio, we can power it from the grid, from a generator, from your from your car or truck, um, from, a, from a 12-volt battery sitting on the floor, or from a solar module. So there's a lot more ways in emergency situations to keep DC-powered appliances functioning indefinitely Whereas with an AC type of appliance, it's only going to run when the grid is there or when, as long as you have fuel for your generator. If, if someone's listening to you today and they have like zero preparedness on the energy front, what would be the first four or five things you would say to do first? Um, the first thing I would say is... Um, Get prepared, dummy! <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, obviously, the cheapest route, if we're, if we're talking about economics, the cheapest route 
is to go out of the store and get a whole pot load of batteries to, <laughs> while they're available because that's going to be the first thing that sells out, um, you know, as soon as a as soon as there's a storm forecast. So if you if you keep a big store of of non rechargeable batteries on hand, you can at least um, if you have that in a a couple of handfuls of cheap LED flashlights. Um, uh, I mean, that's one way to go on the cheap. Um, and you know, most of these batteries should should hold their charge a couple of years if you know not being used. But the the next thing to me is um, multiple ways to keep a cell phone charged up. And uh, there are some fold up solar modules, well under fifty dollars, that are sized to um, to charge up a cell phone. And these will fold up to about the size of a a pocketbook, the kind that you read, you know, a little uh, paperback novel size. Um, easily keep in a glove, glove compartment or on a desk drawer or something. And so being able to keep a cell phone charged to me is a real high priority, at least for as long as, you know, the, there's somebody out there <laughs> to talk to and and there's broadcast, uh, you know, the, assuming the, the Internet is functional, which, you know, is, that's not a guarantee, but... Um, but you have to remember, if there's a power outage, your typical um, Internet-related devices are not going to function. You may have a laptop computer that runs on batteries, but you know, if you're normally uh, in a house, you've, you've got a router now. Most people are using uh, routers that let them wirelessly connect to the Internet anywhere in their house. Well, look on the back of that router. It's plugged into a wall outlet. You know, it doesn't have a 12-volt battery in it. Uh, same thing for satellite receivers and and um, high-speed modems. These are all made for a working grid. And yes, they could be powered from a generator, but again, they're only going to work when the generator has fuel and it's running. So um, we want to start looking at um, those types of things that you're really going to need for, that will help for your uh, convenience and life safety. You know, that is getting the news, getting the weather. Uh, staying informed of what's going on, um, and the first easiest thing would be to keep a cell phone charged. The next thing would be, of course, the radio I talked about earlier. And and um, once you you go the route of uh, having a whole bunch of throwaway batteries, uh, the most obvious solution is to replace all of your elect electronic devices. Um, replace them um, with uh, rechargeable batteries, and I have a, a whole chapter in the book on what are the best types of rechargeable batteries to get, and and what to look for, and and um, you know that's there's there's so much new technology today in batteries that uh, those of us that that grew up back in the uh, 60s and 70s and even the 80s, you talk about rechargeable batteries, the first thing that comes to mind is the old NICADs that had the memory problem and were a pain to charge, and, and if you had a, typically had a camera that had a rechargeable battery on it, you had to literally recharge the batteries the day that you planned to use the camera, uh, and, and then it may not last long enough to take more than a couple dozen photos. So uh, rechargeable batteries have changed, and there's some really cool technology out there now that makes them last a lot longer. Um, they hold a charge um, longer in standby, and uh, they're just it's just better today. 
Very cool. Well, how can people learn more about the stuff you're doing, read your, your writing, find the products you recommend, things like that? Well, um, thanks for asking. I am uh, a regular writer for Backwoods Home Magazine, um, pretty much in every issue. So I have, um, they like me to deal mostly with the energy and, and solar uh, types of uh, technology. So just about every issue of Backwoods Home Magazine has an article I have uh, written for um, uh, something about um, I mean, I've got everything from uh, solar-powered uh, uh, electric doors on a chicken coop to, uh, you know, uh, uh, off-grid weekend cabins, do-it-yourself. All these are do-it-yourself type of articles. I have, I really work hard to, uh, in the articles, to describe a project or a device that a homeowner can do himself. It doesn't require an electrician or you know we're not dealing with high voltages and and they're fairly simple uh, types of of um, projects so um, I also am occasionally in a Mother Earth News uh, magazine a lot of people are familiar with that publication and uh, um, there's a new magazine out now Self-Reliance which I write for regularly it's a quarterly magazine um, then there's um, uh, Home Power Magazine, if you really want to get into a really heavy, uh, like whole house solar projects, that's typically what uh, Home Power Magazine deals with is residential um, 100% solar homes and off-grid homes and things. And, and I'm occasionally in, in that publication also. So I'm easy to find if you just Google my name, Jeff Yago. It's just J-E-F-F-Y-A-G-O. And... Um, then you put a comma and put solar or batteries or whatever. Um, pretty easy to find. And you do have a website of your own, correct? I do. I have um, I have three websites that we've had for years, and I'm in the process of consolidating them. One was more for just solar only. Um, one was more for the the engineering work only, and and so I've been consolidating them down to one right now. So it's Typically a work in transition, but it's um, www.offgridprepper.com. That's O-F-F, offgrid, G-R-I-D, prepper, P-R-E-P-P-E-R.com. So everything is migrating to there. Um, you will, um, hopefully you'll find links to, to many of these articles I've written. Uh, all of them are available online for free. You can... Um, these articles go back to, I think I started um, probably in the 1990s. So um, there's, um, you know, I have a lot of articles I think people will find very helpful, especially if they're wanting to do some of this themselves. Well, very cool, man. And, and your book, we, we discussed that before we got on the air together. Uh, easiest place for people to pick that up is on Amazon.com. And that new book is called Lights On by Jeff Yago, and I do have a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can pick that book up. I think it'd make a, a good Christmas gift for your uh, prepper friends and family as well. Uh, I know a lot of you guys listen to this. You're part of a you know a spouse relationship where both of you listen, and uh, maybe one of you is the more active person in doing the stuff, and this would make a good gift. Uh, it's a great book and uh, has a really great forward, too. Yeah, I was. Um, I, we didn't even mention that today, but... Um, I have a, my 
forward in the first, uh, I guess it's chapter two, I talk about there was a time in the United States when um, there was over half a million homes that were battery-powered, totally off-grid. Uh, people just don't realize this, but back in the 20s, um, there's an inventor called Charles, named Charles Kittering that he invented the first whole house uh, generator, and um, it only put out about 850 watts. But he sold these as a package with with a uh, with 16 glass cell batteries, which was 32 volts DC. They didn't use an inverter; it wasn't solar. It's just a generator and a battery bank. And to go with this, he invented um, battery-powered well pump, battery-powered clothes iron, battery-powered washing machine, battery-powered radios. I mean, uh, you know, everything a homestead needed that, um, you know, up until this time, up until the 1920s, it was just kerosene lamps for light and, and a hand pump. There wasn't any anything else that was electrically powered. Now, of course, cities in the 1920s were certainly starting to get uh, central electricity, um, but um, up until right before World War II, um, there still was um, over half the United States uh, was without electricity, and so um, Kittering came along and filled that void. and And by the time the um, they extended the you know the Rural Electrification Act in 1937, when the government started helping get co-ops going. Until 1937, anybody out in the rural areas or out in the western states, if they wanted electricity, um, it was pretty much the, um, the Charles Kittering's generator battery bank. And then, of course, the Jacobs Wind generators came along later, and um, they just um, made use of the fact that people already had these battery banks. So they were, they were selling the generators to attach on to the battery banks as a way to to keep them charged up without running a generator. So a lot of folks think that, um, you know, it was the Jacobs were standalone, but actually they were being sold as an add-on to people who already had a, a generator. So my feeling is we're kind of going back to the future here. If things keep going the way they're going, we may have a another half a million people powering their homes with, um, with uh, some type of battery bank. So... Uh, where we might be heading that way. Well, again, Jeff, I'd like to thank you for being with us today. Uh, you're always a great source of information. Again, the website is offgridprepper.com, the new book, Lights On, by Jeff Yago. You can find that at Amazon. And, uh, Jeff, I hope you have a great day, and thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jack. Thanks again. Love having Jeff on. We should get Jeff and, and Steve Harris on together. They'll either love each other or kill each other. Either way, it'll be entertaining as hell anyway if you enjoyed that show and you'd like to uh to learn more to learn more if you'd like to help support the show you can do that by joining the member support brigade just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more you do that you'll get exclusive content available only to members you'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode the big thing is you'll get discounts to over 60 companies use those discounts and they will more than pay for your membership and I don't mean use them all I, I don't know anybody that's probably used them all in a single year it's a lot of stuff but you use four or five 
five over a year, you're going to get your money back on it. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, active duty or prior service, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get that discount code back to you. You've got to do it again before, not after you join. The other way to support us today is through... Uh, going to tspaz.com whenever you're going to do your Amazon shopping. When you go to tspaz, which is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, you'll see a link. You can click that link. You'll get on over to amazon.com. You can just do your shopping like you always do, and your shopping will support the Survival Podcast. And if you're listening to this in real time, we're about to go into December. There's a lot of holiday shopping to be done in the next few weeks. If you're going to buy stuff on Amazon, I'd really appreciate it this time of year if you would just go through tspaz.com before you do. It doesn't take you any more time or effort, and you will be helping to support the show that you listen to, hopefully, five days a week. Um, I also review an item every day from Amazon for you guys, usually an item that I personally own. Sometimes it's something that's uh, referred to me by audience members, and I am actually going to start taking suggestions from the audience soon on, on different products and things like that to help build out uh, the recommended catalog. I will still have to do my own independent research just because somebody suggests suggest something. doesn't mean that I'll be like, oh, okay, well, that must be good because Tom said it's good. I mean, I, yeah, I always research everything I recommend deeply. Uh, this one I've researched by actually buying it several months ago. I mentioned this item recently when somebody asked me about a, a, basically a scam on air rifles. It is the kind of best mid-priced break-action air rifle that I've found. It's the Crossman Nitro Venom. I've got a full write-up on it today. You can link on over to uh, Amazon from my article and, and get the, that, that gun if you want, either for yourself or for a gift. It's available in .22 and .177 caliber. There's a lot to like about this gun. Uh, one of the big things I like about it is the, the value-to-price ratio. There are better brake barrel air rifles. What I mean by brake barrel is you grab it, you break the, the, the barrel loose of the rifle, and you cock it one time, put a pellet in it, close it back up, and shoot it. And there's better guns out there than this one. Not a lot better, but better. But they're $250, $300, and, and, and more some of them. And I just think that's an awful lot to spend on an air rifle. I can go out and buy a good center fire, you know, entry-level center fire rifle for that. These are about 150 bucks, like 130 and 145 respectively, or something like that for the 177 versus 22. Uh, they got a lot of <coughs> sorry, uh, they got a lot of power. Uh, the uh, 22 smoking out at about 800 feet per second. The 177 at about a thousand. Those are realistic numbers too, based on using lead pellets, not the special alloy ones that go faster. Those will uh, get out the the barrel about a thousand feet per second or 100 feet per second faster. I don't really use those a lot, so I don't tend to quote them. I think it overhypes what a uh, what a gun is capable of. It's also accurate, um, really accurate. Uh, I've been able to uh, drill out a quarter at about 25 yards with it, no problem, and uh, hit beer cans off my back fence, which is about 60 yards from the porch, just sit in a chair and off one knee. So I think that's plenty accurate for a pellet gun. Um, it, it is also the case that all of these guns need a break-in period. I kind of wanted a little mini-segment of the show here for you on this. Brake barrel air guns a lot of times get a bad rap, and people are saying the scope's moving around, and that happens too. We'll talk about that in a second. But more often than not, what happens when you have it's just a piston in there. You're driving and, and cocking that piston and, and, and closing that gun up, and it's a brand new from the factory piston. And what happens is until that piston kind of breaks and settles in, you get some pretty decent variations in its power. 
So you'll get you know 20 feet per second faster than average this time and 10 less the next one and 13 higher the next one. And you get beyond what's called standard deviation, which is your acceptable normal deviation between shots. And there's just some other things with the piston and the way that it's recoiling and the force of cocking and things like that. And you'll get some inconsistencies in accuracy. And after a certain number of shots, that piston kind of you know sinks in, and you get that consistency that you're looking for, because air rifles like this are very, very accurate. So a lot of the stuff out there takes you know 500 to 1,000 shots to break in. Uh, the nitro pistons, and specifically this one, generally will break in between two and 300. I still put 500 rounds through it. I detail my entire break-in procedure for these guns on there. If there's a downside to this gun, it's the scope. It's not the best scope. I'm using the one that came with it still on mine. I'm okay with it. I'm probably going to replace it with a UTG, uh, mill dot air gun scope that I also link to in the article that you can check out. It's not a terrible scope. It's just, it's not the clearest scope. I'm not expecting loophole optics quality from an air gun scope, but it's, it's subpar. The reason I don't really care if the gun was 150 bucks and you had to buy your own scope, I'd still think it was a great value. It's like, it's a free scope. You, at least you have it. Uh, you can use it as a backup if something goes wrong with one of your better scopes. I would definitely consider upgrading the scope on it. Uh, but during the break-in period, why not just use the cheap scope? And uh, I'll give you my basic break-in. I like to, again, do 500 rounds. And I have these targets I shoot with air guns and airsoft that are basically steel plates. They look like steel plates you'd shoot with a, you know, a real gun, but they're a little bit thinner. And I have them mounted on a wooden frame. And I just set it way out by the fence. It's like 50 yards out. And I just go out there and shoot offhand at the big plates, the six-inch plates. So that's like a deer's waddles at 50 yards offhand. So I think it's good practice. Uh, even before you're fully broken in, you should be accurate enough. To, if you miss that, it's probably your fault. Uh, and I just take 100 pellets. I put them in a little bowl. I set them out on the little ledge on my porch. And every time I get some free time, I go out there and just shoot. And I just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. When that bowl's empty, I fill it up again, put a little mark on it with a Sharpie marker. When there's five marks in an empty bowl... I've got my 500 rounds, and then I start looking for the best pellet, and that is something important with pellet guns as well, finding the pellet your gun likes. And not every mo- you know, even if you have the same model, two of them may not really super like the same pellet, but mine's actually like some pretty affordable Crossman uh, 22 pellets that are like 6 bucks for 500 So I concluded a link to those as well. But remember, tspaz.com, and uh, if you're looking for an air rifle, I really like the Benjamin 392 variable pump. But there is something to be said for one quick pump and being able to shoot at full power. And the Nitro Venom, to me, is one of the best values out there in that mid-$100 range. And you might be something to check out for a gift for somebody or for yourself uh, this time of year. And uh, otherwise, just shop through T-Spaz whenever you're on Amazon.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. I, I actually had a kind of a funny song for you guys today, just a gag song from the early 80s um, that will now be tomorrow. It will now be tomorrow that I play that song. When I saw the history segment today and saw that John Wayne was born, you know, this the year of this episode, it made me think of a song I've played for you before because we also had a history segment where we talked about, you know, in, in Alex Strug's take, the modern day, well, like 1960s, Travis McGee. Uh, who was a character from uh, John McDonald, and I played this song when we had that, and it also this song also mentions John Wayne, and uh, it's by Jimmy Buffett. It's called Incommunicado, 
And here's kind of the story behind the song from Jimmy himself. He says, The day that John Wayne died, I drove up the top of Independence Pass above Aspen and walked along the Continental Divide. Somehow Travis McGee crept into my mind as I pondered the incredible vista. After a Mexican meal in Leadville, I wrote this song on the way back to Aspen for the Duke and Travis McGee. And as I said, I love John Wayne. I love what John Wayne was all about. John Wayne was about the America that we want to believe in still today, that we're losing, where men were men. Men were tough. Men didn't bow down or kowtow to anybody. They were proper in their treatment of a woman, but they didn't, you know, bow down in front of one. When something needed to be done, it got done. If you got hurt doing it, well, that's just the way that it was because it needed to be done. If it didn't need to be done, you shouldn't risk it, stupid. You know, John Wayne, I think, said something to the effect one time, is life's tough. It's tougher if you're stupid. And today, that type of language is seen as upsetting. It makes kids run to safe spaces and stuff like that. I miss John Wayne. But I've also been trying to give you deeper messages from songs, and this one has a pretty good one. Incommunicado means basically not able or wanting or willing to communicate with others, to be isolated, to go up to the top of a mountain and take a walk where the cell phones don't go. And when when Jimmy wrote this, this song's obviously from quite a long time ago. It, it originally, I think, came out on the album called uh, Coconut Telegraph. I don't remember when the song was released, but I can tell you the exact day it was written, if Jimmy's story is true, and it probably is. It would have been June 11th, 1979 is when uh, John passed away. So there were no cell phones back then, but maybe that made getting incommunicado a little bit easier. But, you know, a guy like Jimmy Buffett, especially 1979, that was the kind of the the top of his his career as far as, I don't know, the guy still sells out, you know, Coliseums today, but that's when he was getting radio play heavily and things like that. He was really big time and wanting to be away. I can understand that. There's times when I do that. There's times like recently when my wife and I went on vacation, we didn't tell you where we were going and we had people reaching out to us saying they wanted to meet with us. And our response was no, leave us alone. It's not that we don't want to see you. We don't want to see anybody. We want it to be just us. We want to be incommunicado. And I think that whether you're a public personality or you know just anybody there's there's a place for that almost all of us have people reaching out for us and needing things from us and wanting us and that's good i think if we didn't have that we would feel quite useless as beings but we you know we talked about batteries today and a constant with a battery is if you use it energy comes out of it and at some point you got to stop using it and recharge it that's what going incommunicado does for you sometimes it gives you an opportunity to recharge so that you can come back and provide that energy to others and and i think it's important that we all take certain times and i think you need to schedule it I think you need to schedule it because there's a the thing about not scheduling time off, incommunicado time, time with family, date nights with spouses. Boy, you work on dating when you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, but when you're married, it's easy to just plop on the couch or whatever. All of these things need to be scheduled. 
And sometimes when you say stuff like that, like scheduling time with a family member or whatever, people think like, well, that's like business-like and all. Well, you know, business is important. Well, family's more important. So if I do it for business, I damn sure do it for family. But sometimes you got to do it for yourself. Sometimes you got to go incommunicado. And it might be learning about something like a hero of yours passing away or retiring or something like that 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 makes you decide it's time to do it kind of off the cuff like Jimmy. There's other times, though, you should just bolt it in, build in that decompression time. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Travis McGee still in Cedar Key. That's what old John McDonald said. My rendezvous so long overdue with all of the things I've sung and I've read. They still apply to me. They all make sense in time. But now I'm incommunicado. Driving by myself down the road with a hole and it's songs with no vibrato. Taking the long way home. Now on the day that John Wayne died, I found myself on the continental divide. Tell me where do I go from here? Think I'll ride into Leadville and have a few bears. Think a Red River or Liberty Balance. Can't believe the old man's gone. But now he's in. Line. I put the book by itself on the shelf with my heart and it never wasting time taking the right way home I know I'm never wasting time finding the right way home still I am in communication